Hello, and welcome to History from the Dorm Room with Eric Andreessen. Now, I have to preface this entire show with who I am. I'm a current sophomore at Duke University, and I'm majoring in public policy, not history. So I am not a historian. I am not someone who is majoring in history. I am just someone who is very interested in history. Now, obviously, as a as an avid fan of history, I have to have different ways to intake that history. Obviously, a lot of the times at school, what I'm doing is I'm reading and I'm looking at case studies and I'm looking at you know, the famous historical events of the ancient world and of the modern world, but it's not necessarily enough to satisfy a, a, you know, a deeper want for history. Um, and so, long story short, my dad, who walks to work every day, started listening to podcasts and came across Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And obviously... Uh, you know, if you're listening to a history podcast, you've probably already heard Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And if you haven't, I encourage you to do so. It's about my show. It's like my show, but about 100 times better. Um, I loved all the episodes. I've listened to all the ones on Spotify and I've even gotten, you know, the extra ones from his website. But the one thing I always thought was missing was a, was a bigger look into China and ancient China in particular. Now, he had a podcast about about the ancient Mongolians uh, with Genghis Khan, you know, he talked about the Yuan dynasty and, and the Jing. And, you know, there were parts of it that made contact with the Chinese, but that was definitely not the biggest part of the entire uh, series. And that's the one thing I, you know, really regret, not regret, but I really hope he does an episode on that soon. Um, but instead of hoping he does, why not make my own episode? And that's where we're at today. Uh, and so this episode, I wanted to look at a dynasty to me that, historically does not get enough enough credit for what it what it what it did doesn't get enough credit for the size it was or for the conquests it did or, or for the laws it put into place or for the developments and, and the, honestly even the people of it I mean, the generals and the, and the emperors i mean these were you know compet this em- this dynasty for me historically competes with any of the greek city states and surely competes with 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 the roman empire because um, this dynasty is the han dynasty of china which existed from 207 BC to, to a, it disbanded for a year or two during a civil war uh, around 89 AD, but it, it, it didn't officially uh, collapse until around 280. So a 400 year old empire. Now 400 years old, I know is not as long as Rome. It's not as long as some of the city States of Greece, but China's different in the sense that once, you know, a dynasty ends, it's not the end of the Chinese empire per se, you know, they'll have a new dynasty come out of the old, the Qing ended, the Han came, the Han ended, the Ming came, and so on and so forth. You have the Tang, and you have the Song, and you have the Qing, and you, I mean, you, you start to see that, you know, the, civ- the culture and the civilization, like the, the foundation that you need to have a society is always there. They, they're not starting from scratch um, like the Europeans did, and they're not starting from scratch the way the Romans did. So, you know, the, to me, the conquest of Julius Caesar and the fall of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the empire. Uh, to the Pax Romana are widely understood throughout the West. They are. We all have read the comment. Now we all have it, but the commentaries are a very you know, well-read book by Julius Caesar. The dramas and the, and the culture, people go and visit Mount Vesuvius to go see uh, Pompeii and what Roman life was like. And I think the reason that is is because in the West, it's easier to picture ourselves in ancient Rome than it is to picture ourselves in ancient China, at least for me from European descent. I don't want to anger any of my listeners out there, if there are any. 
But that's the one thing I was intrigued about. I took a class this semester at Duke. I took a history class, the history of China from antiquity to 1400. And what I was able to ascertain from it is that China, ancient China especially, the way it developed was just not the same as the West. It developed differently. It was isolated. It was its own little microcosm of, of society, civilization, and culture. It arguably better. I mean, they put together some unbelievable dynasties that accomplished some of the greatest things in the whole world and some things that they invented and did that without, the West wouldn't be the West. Gunpowder, compasses, paper, printing presses, I, these are all inventions of the Chinese. And the Chinese had invented a printing press oh, 800 years before the, the Europeans got their hands on ones. And we know how important the printing press was. If you look at anything in the Reformation, you look at anything in the Renaissance, none of that would be possible without a printing press. And the Chinese had done it 800 years before. Now, looking at China, especially the Han Dynasty, and a little before that, I guess I have to give a little backstory more on why we might not, Europe, you know, European descent, people who descended from Europeans don't relate to that as much. And the first thing is religion. Um, a lot of the societies that we look at in ancient Greece and Rome are powered by religion. You know, there's a God they fight for and there's a cause they fight for. And, and even in the Muslim world, even if you're not, uh, even if you're not yourself, even if you don't practice Islam yourself, you still are aware of the, you know, the, the stories and how each religion sort of ties together and how there's different sects and schisms and prophets and whatnot. And that all seems very easy for us to understand. You know, the Greeks fought for their gods. Then they had a society that closely mirrored, I mean, Athens is a democracy. It closely mirrors our society. It's easier to put ourselves in the, those people's shoes. And it's easier to see how their history led into our history. Well, for the Chinese, it's very hard to see yourself in a totalitarian. I mean, when I say totalitarian, this is totalitarianism to a level you could never even imagine. Um, it's hard to put yourself there. China didn't have that. They had origin stories. They had stories of how the universe came to be, but it didn't power a centralized religion. And that religion was definitely never part of the state in the sense that it, it dictated ways of life to the degree that we think so. Their religions are more of philosophies. I mean, Confucianism for a while would not be considered a religion. It has temples now, but it's more of a way of, of living as opposed to a, you know, a way to live to get into heaven. And then, you know, you do these things, go to church, you know, pay your indulgences depending on when you're living, and then you'll go to heaven. It's not like that. So it's harder for us to, to see that. And, and also, it's, it's harder for people in the West to translate. Chinese is a very hard language. It's easy to translate Latin if you're from the West. You have tons of languages that are descendant from it. It's a, the church of, of the Catholic Church only spoke in Latin. You know, they only read the Bible in Latin for, for a thousand years, and now it's over. Uh, that's changed, but on to China. So the thing I want to talk about the Han dynasties, because it existed for me at the same time as Rome. Rome, to most people, is arguably the greatest civilization of that day. And for many people in the West, it was the greatest civilization until very recently. Shockingly recently, it was the most advanced civilization in Europe for a very long time. Think about Europe having running water. What were the greatest empires in Europe? You had the French, you had the British, and the, the, the Germans eventually, you know, the, the Prussian states and the German states eventually got together and made a pretty good state for themselves. But running water aqueducts. I mean, people in London in the 1800s were getting cholera because they were drinking out of dirty wells. And this is at the peak of the British Empire. This is when the British Empire had the saying that the sun never set in the British Empire. And they didn't have running water. 
at least not to the extent um, that's believed Rome had. So you had Rome, the greatest Western European empire in history, maybe up until, you know, within memory of people a couple generations removed from us, but the exact same time, I mean, the exact same time, almost to a T of when Julius Caesar um, was running around in Gaul and, and, and when all these other things in Rome were happening that we know so well, the Han Dynasty was dominating Eastern, Europe, Eastern Asia. You know, halfway across the Eurasian landmass, well, entirely across the Eurasian landmass. Um, but the Han Dynasty to me was the most interesting because the connection is very easy to make and it's very simple. It's not going to be one I want to I want to make a whole lot, but the connection is 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 quite you know simple minded in the sense that both of them were fighting barbarians. Both of them had a barbarian threat. The Roman Rome got sacked by barbarians. Rome got sacked twice by barbarians. Very afraid of their northern barbarians, you know, they sent legions up north to you know to go to Germania and 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 guard that territory to stop those Germans from coming down and wreaking more havoc. And even the Gauls, you know, Vercingetorix, and uh, when he fought against Julius Caesar, I mean, the, the barbarians to them were a menace, and they were also a menace to the Chinese. And as you know, the Chinese, this is not the, the Han Dynasty was not the last encounter with northern barbarians, this, the, but their barbarians were known as steppe nomads. The steppe is ginormous. It's an absolutely large landmass, but it possessed a lot of nomadic tribes. And when these tribes got together, they could be quite devastating. Now, the most devastating, obviously, is Genghis Khan and the Mongolians, but the Han also had a very devastating uh, tribal alliance they had to deal with, which were the Xiongnu. Now, the Han dynasty didn't start from nothing, as I said, but the Han dynasties, especially their military, their ability to embrace new systems of fighting, I mean, the incredible logistical and structural uh, achievements that they had, as well as the daring leadership, allowed it to attain levels of conquest that had never yet been seen in China. I mean, these helped usher in benefits to the Chinese for thousands of years to come um, because they allowed for the Han Dynasty's military to eliminate its greatest threats. But the start of the Han Dynasty is almost like all Chinese dynasties, with the new rising out of the ashes of the old. The land that is now China, you know, back way back uh, before the Han, used to ex- uh, was a land that existed in perpetual war between the many states of the area between the period of uh, 475 to 221 BC. This was known as the Warring States period. A lot of great things came from this. Confucianism came from this. Art of war came from this. Um, but nothing. I mean, nothing. Obviously, no one would want to live in a period like that. However, under the rule. This all sort of changed when, under the rule of Qi Shi Huangdi, uh, and the military strength of the Qing state, uh, the Qin state, China was actually unified by the sword. And in 221 BC, the Qing dynasty was established. But the total monarchical rule under the system that they implemented called legalism was very brutal. Now, there's a proverb, well, maybe potentially true, but a story about legalism is that there was the emperor. And this is sort of sums up legalism in, in, in a nutshell. There was an emperor. And this emperor had someone who had employed someone whose job it was to, was to put a blanket over him when he fell asleep. And another person to take his crown and put it next to his bedside. Now, one day, for whatever reason, the guy who was supposed to take off the crown wasn't there. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he died. Unclear. 
But the emperor was aware of this and knew that only the man who was supposed to put his blanket on would be there. And the emperor falls asleep. A the the man comes in, puts a blanket on on the emperor, but also takes his crown off and puts it next to his bed. You know, going the extra mile. The emperor wakes up and realizes his crown was also, you know, had also been taken off and put on the side of his bed. And he he was aware that 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 maybe wasn't supposed to happen. And he asked who did this. You know, who did this act of kindness? Who went out of their way to, to sort of out of their way to do an extra job? They find the guy, they bring him in, and they execute him. I mean, obviously this might not have happened, but it goes to show what legalism was. Legalism was this structure where you just had, you were a cog in a wheel. I mean, this is, this is also the same, this is the same guy in the same structure who made the Great Wall. I mean, this is the same emperor who commanded thousands upon thousands of unique terracotta soldiers to be put in his tomb. I mean, this was a system that, you know, got things done. It unified China, but it was brutal. And that pressure, I mean, that system just falls apart after he dies. I mean, the government system completely begins to falter after, Qi, uh, after Qing Shi Huang dies. And so two rebel leaders end up from different states um, end up vying for control of the collapsing dynasty. The two are Xiang Yu of the Chu state and Liao Bang of the Han. Now, the Han were successful in their own regions at dismantling you know, the, the, the Qin rulership, and I mean the Qing rule of law, and dismantling their authority in their own states. But the Chu were equally, if not more, successful in doing so in theirs. Xiang Yu uh, of Chu was immensely successful against the Qing. And, and according to the Book of Han, um, you know, Xiang Yu had forced the famed Qing general, you know, quote, Zhang Hang and his whole army to surrender to Xiang Yu, and Xiang Yu made him the king of Yun, end quote. And the two actually got together and turned their, their new joint army toward the Han. I mean, obviously you think the Han dynasty, you might know how this ends, but to me it's shocking how this even got to the point where we have a Han dynasty. And so the Lord of Pei, which is a, a Han, a Han affiliate. You know, they had a magistrate that gave the following advice to Liu Bang about handling the Chu army, and, it, and the advice was, "Quote: You might hasten to send troops to guard the Han Ku Pass. Do not admit any of the nobles, and levy some soldiers from Quan Chung in order to add to your own army. Uh, and you must resist them." End quote. Now Liu Bang assented to this plan. He followed it, and they actually blocked off this pass, and it caused a stalemate. You know, not a Thermopylae situation, but there was a, pa a small, narrow pass, and the Han were able to stop this massive and very successful and very efficient Chu army. Uh, but, in two, uh, but in 202 BC, uh, a decisive battle occurs. According to the, an uh, the annals of Emperor Cao Tzu, the battle went as such. Quote, In the twelfth month, they surrounded Xiang Yu's camp at Gaixia. In the night, Xiang Yu heard the army of Hans on all sides singing the songs of Chu, and thought that the king of Han had gained all the territory of Chu. So, Xiang Yu fled with several hundred horsemen. Because of this fact, his army was severely defeated. Huang Ying pursued and beheaded Xiang Yu at Tongcheng. End quote. Not a lot of information about that battle. At least not from the primary sources. I mean, there's obviously records that go back and discuss the, the ebbs and flows of the battle, but essentially what, what the Book of Han sort of stated is that <laughs> Xiang Yu almost 
was tricked into routing himself. And one thing we know about ancient armies is that without a leader there, they're like a headless robot with no brain. They can't function. The moment you lose your leader, your king, the reason you're fighting or sometimes forced to be there is gone, all hell breaks loose. And Xiang Yu is seemingly not tricked, but is, is mis- misinforms himself and flees. And this completely routes his own army. Such he routes himself and gets himself beheaded and his army destroyed. And after that, after that decisive battle, Liu Bang declared himself as the first emperor of the newly established Han dynasty. The Qing had enemies and problems that were not dealt with, though. As we said, while these three were fighting for, you know, while the Qing, the Qin were, were falling apart, but as the other two were fighting, the nomadic tribes of China, you know, which were the reason for the Great Wall being constructed, were untouched during this brief conflict of power. The massive Han military needed to be properly fed, structured, and commanded if they were going to just up and fight such a foe after establishing their new dynasty. The Han Dynasty's military was an incredible force. And it took substantial planning supplies and a very complex structure to keep them in the field. Now, here's a look into how the Han Dynasty looked. Now, we know that how legions worked, and we know how they were standard bearers, and how there were different things and, and different pieces that went into the Roman military. But the Han Dynasty's military is equally as complex. Now, what the, what the Chinese you know, the Han Dynasty army looked like was as such. So in 180 BC, the main army of the Han was the Northern Army, which was, com- which was considered a professional force. When first created, the Northern Army comprised of eight regiments and held around 8,000 troops. Now, obviously not their entire military was 8,000 troops. They could wield armies of much larger size, but this, is a, this, give, this give you a better picture of how it worked. By 31 AD, though, it was reorganized into a smaller force, and this is how it looked. First, there was an army, you know, the big level, the Northern Army, called it Jun, literally just translates to army, oftentimes based on a region. Now, in the army, the highest-ranking officer that was there uh, was an inspector, and it was sort of known in Chinese as the captain of the center, or if you speak Chinese, uh, a Beijun Zhonghou. So there was that leader. But below him, there were five sub-commanders, and usually at the rank of colonel, uh, and one, each of them led a regiment, a, you know, a bu, a regiment. Now, the five regiments in the Northern Han Army were the Picked Cavalry Regiment. That was the first one, and this was hand-picked and elite cavalry fighters, around 900 men, by the way, for each of these regiments. And then there was a regiment of garrison cavalry. The next was a regiment of archers, followed by a regiment of foot soldiers, and lastly, a regiment of Chang River fighters. That wasn't the only army, as I said. To offer a force of similar size, the Army of the Western Garden was formed, utilizing private soldiers from the, the warlords around the northern regions. Uh, there was also a southern army, which was created in 138 BC, and it held around 6,000 men. However, in this army, the thing that made it different from the northern is that troops were rotated annually, and thus these, the southern army was never really considered a professional army. Looking at the Han later, you'll see that most of their conflict does occur in the north, in the northwest, while they do have conquest in the, in, in the south as well. But it is known that the total number of professional soldiers uh, in eastern Han, including all the smaller groups, accounted to some 20,000 soldiers. Uh, that's from the book Fire Over Luoyang, that statistic, a history of the later Han Dynasty. But to field such a large force, a swath of logistics were required, a lot. According to Zhao Chongguo, who served first in the first century BC, he, he reported that a force of 10,281 men, and the Chinese, you'll learn, are very specific in their numbers sometimes, 
required 27,363 hu of grain and 308 hu of salt each month, requiring a convoy of 1,500 carts for transport, end quote. Now, one hu is about uh, 19.96 liters, meaning that each soldier per month required 51.9 liters of grain and 0.6 liters of salt. Imagine feeding that. Imagine if you have a bad harvest. Do you feed your people or defend your borders or do you conquest? What do you do? Truly incredible stuff from the Han. Now, one of the most striking aspects of the Han dynasty that made it you know, stand out compared to the dynasties um, before and after was their huge emphasis on cavalry. So it's actually estimated that 36% of their force was cavalry. Doesn't sound too crazy, but compared to the, to the Qing forces from the dynasty before that had unified China by the sword, only had 6% of their army comprised of their cavalry. In the next dynasty, the, the Ming, after the Han, which we won't get into, but theirs is only 3%. 3% of their army was cavalry. The Han had 36. But the Han uh, military did take one interesting aspect from the Qing, and that their armies you know, never had permanent generals. The generals were chosen or appointed directly by the emperor as a need arose. So the opposite of Rome. After the Marian reforms, it's very obvious that you know, the Roman legions had become loyal to their generals. And you'll see in Pompey and you'll see in, in uh, Crassus and Caesar, they, these people could be cult of personalities and could you know, raise an army and do what they want with it and sometimes turn it against the, the city they were sworn to protect. The Chinese weren't going to let that happen. The Chinese system, though, has always seemingly been about keeping uh, a very structured command system. It's always been about having a strong uh, government. I mean, to, for, for a civilization that's always had a lot of people, especially before there was modern technology, you know, in communication technology, it almost had to be like that, to build a wall that long on your northern border in the mountains. And I've been there, and it's striking. And in photos, it still looks jarring, but when you go there in person, they were building on very steep cliffs and very jarring mountain ranges. And, you know, these things had to be done with organized command structures. They would divert rivers. I mean, before the Qing Dynasty, some of the states of the Warring State would divert whole rivers, giant projects, huge engineering feats. I mean, giant, I, mean I can't even express to you how hard it would be to do today. And they were doing it back then, and the only way to organize that many people was to have a stronger leadership. So the idea was to always protect the emperor. But one of the largest problems that the Han, as I said, had inherited from the previous Qing dynasty was this tribal group known as the Xiongnu. Many, they were, uh, you know, many independent tribes were located in and around modern-day Mongolia uh, during the Qing dynasty. And they, you know, so they perceived the Qing to be a threat to their existence, rightfully so. The Qing would fight back. They built a giant wall. So the such fear actually allowed, you know, this sort of fear was, was garnered by Moldu Chanyu uh, to unify them. He was a nomadic, he was a nomadic leader, and he unified these tribes all around, in and around Mongolia, uh, and created a much more formidable sh uh, group called the Xiongnu, just two years before the establishment of the Han. So their ethnic groups actually aren't known, uh, but there's some, you know, fringe conspiracy theory that uh, there's an ethnic relation between them and the Huns, but that has never been truly proven. Now, these nomadic tribes, according to ancient texts, and you obviously don't even need ancient texts to guess what 
you know, the steppe nomads of Asia would do. They would ravage what they came across and engage in swift and brutal raids, just like the Mongols. The apple never fell far from the tree. But the nomadic tribe's presence in the northern regions of China was so fierce that Qing had to order this wall, and the unification of the Xiongnu state allowed for these nomadic tribes to present a threat even larger to the Chinese because they could field the bigger army than when they put up the Great Wall of China. The Qing were so afraid of these individual tribes that they built one of the greatest engineering feats in the world. And now these tribes were unified. They were under one command structure. They were one giant force. And they were a menace. And, from the, and according to the Book of Han, from the very moment the Han came to power, Liu Bang, quote, was surrounded at Pingcheng and put in great danger by the Xiongnu, end quote. And one of his prominent Han leaders, Tai Zong, quote, was forced to submit to the humiliation of presenting tribute. End quote. The early conflicts of the Xiongnu and the, Han, and the Han dynasty were consistently in favor of the Xiongnu. Now, the first major conflict is described by Sima Qian, sort of the Chinese Herodotus or the Chinese uh, Thucydides in the records of the Grand Historian. Now, he says, quote, The Xiongnu once massed their forces in the, once more massed their forces in the northwest of Luofang. The Han Emperor dispatched his general of chariot and cavalry to attack the Xiongnu. Because the Xiongnu constantly retreated in fight, the Han forces were able to follow up their perceived advantage and pursue them into the steppe. Hearing that the Mo'atun, the Xiongnu commander, was in the Tai Valley, the Emperor, who was staying in Qinyang, sent scouts to spy on him. The scouts returned and reported that Mo'atun could be attacked, whereupon the Emperor advanced. End quote. Now the next... I couldn't read out of the Book of Han because I wanted to explain this sort of, almost like a plot twist. The Xiongnu cavalry essentially then pounced and surrounded the emperor. Just like that. The emperor was surrounded. He had just established himself as the new emperor of the Han dynasty. And just like that, scouts say, yep, he's good to attack. Yep, they're retreating. Let's go after him. He's surrounded. In a panic, he sends envoys filled with gifts to Motong. Um, but one of the envoys has an interesting message. It's actually sent to one of his consorts, and it reads, quote, Even if you were now to get possession of Han lands, you cannot occupy them. It is better that the rulers of two nations not bother each other. End quote. How about that? You just established an empire, a dynasty. You took over the Qing, who ruled with you know, an iron fist, who had unified all of China, and then you beat the Chu state, in a decisive victory, and just like that, you're surrounded and, and fooled by a bunch of nomadic tribesmen, and you're clearly able to fight, and you end up saying that it's better for you two to not bother each other and to stay in your corners. Now, this conflict and the subsequent result you know, demonstrate very clearly the early setbacks of the Han Dynasty. I mean, it showed their unwillingness to beat the Xiongnu, and instead to avoid conflict at all costs. Now, what you see here, though, in this conflict is the way the steppe nomads fought and how it was so hard for them to succeed. Now, the Han had trouble succeeding because the Xiongnu were expert horsemen, and their military was comprised almost entirely of fast and effective cavalry. I mean, they could simply just outmaneuver the Han's you know, slow chariot fighters, and sure as hell could, could outmaneuver their infantry units and m move much faster than them. And you know, when it came to the Han cavalry that did exist at the time, I mean, they could just outclass the smaller and less experienced Han cavalry. Furthermore, the tactics in the Xiongnu used, 
you know, made it incredibly hard to be to defeat them in open field. You know, something that the nomads always tend to use is they would use the vast land of the steppe to fall back into whenever they were looking at a defeat. And moreover, the tactic of, you know, faking their own route proved to be incredibly effective against the early Han, as it was effective against the Jing Chinese in the 15, I mean, in the 1200s when Genghis Khan came. Because in ancient warfare, the majority of deaths did not actually occur on the main battlefield. But instead it occurred, you know, when one side would rout and the other side would hunt them down because they were disorganized with their backs turned. Uh, and what the Xiongnu would do is, you know, as the battle Sima Chen described, is they would goat the Han into forces into believing. You know, they would goat them into believing that they were routing, only to draw the pursuing Han first forces farther and farther out until they were ultimately in a trap and ambushed. However, Liu Bang's proclamation to have both, you know, the Han and the Xiongnu avoid contact with each other, you know, held for a short bit, actually. You know, the two nations avoided outright war for several decades even though the Xiongnu would engage in raids and, and yes, would occasionally you know, massacre you know, a town here in, in the northern fringes of the Han. Uh, but in 141 BCE, that changes. Because in 141 BCE, Emperor Wu of the Han assumes power. And according to the, according to the Book of Han, he was indignant about this catering to the Xiongnu. And quote, he thought deeply to work out long-term strategies to rid themselves of the threat the Xiongnu held, end quote. You know, Emperor Wu's long-term solutions changed the course of the Han Dynasty. We know that, and it changed China forever. But, you know, the Book of Han is, is very brief in describing what he actually did, but it proclaims that, quote, he sent brave soldiers to navigate the Yellow River and go right across the deserts to destroy the savages, who were actually the Xiongnu, uh, destroy their court. End quote. However, the real course of events was much more complicated. In 136 BC, the emperor proposed to his court that they should just engage in all-out war with the Xiongnu. Just throw our army at them. But the court did not reach that conclusion at all. Uh, but a compromise was made. Because many in the court you know, were afraid of the potential cost of fighting the Xiongnu in an all-out war against the steppe people. The, the Qing had resorted to building this, this brutal wall. Uh, but the compromise was to lure you know, Jun Chen Chanyu, the, the leader of the Xiongnu, to a certain place. You know, and they would use wealth and promises of defections in order to kill him and thus cause political turmoil for the Xiongnu, just sort of taking off the, the, taking off the brain of the Xiongnu body. Now, this, trip, this trap was you know, set at Ma Yi. And in 133 BC, the Xiongnu forces were all but there as a massive purported to be 300,000-man-strong army from the Han late in wait. Now, obviously, that seems a bit high uh, for what was possible back then, but it's ancient history. We don't have any other numbers. We'll just have to roll with 300,000. But as Jun Qian, you know, the leader of the Xiongnu and his much smaller army of around 10,000, moved closer to Mai Yi, he became suspicious. Now, allegedly, it was because he was tipped off about the impending ambush, but regardless of whatever reason, if he just sort of felt it in the wind or there was, a, in fact, an informant, you know, he pulled his army back. But due to the fact that you know, he was aware of the fact that the Han were trying to ambush him, the peace between the two disintegrated immediately, and the Han court finally decided to engage in full-scale war. Now, remember what I told you about you know, the Han appointing generals. They didn't have just an active general in the field, so the emperor had to appoint Generals, you know, the three big ones who he appoints, the, th the three big one he appoints 
are very three very interesting people, two of which I'll talk about a lot more than the third, but that doesn't mean the third didn't do great things. But the three generals are Wei Qing, Li Shi, and the young Huo Qubing. And in 129 BC, with those generals, the Han Dynasty went on the offensive. Now, one of the things the military did in order to fight against the Xiongnu, as I said, was they cut down on the use of the slow and ineffective chariots. Yeah, they had used them in that previous battle described by Sima Qian, but they you know, were too slow. They were not as fast as the actual horses, and they were great against infantry, but they weren't fighting against infantry. Now, they were fighting against cavalry. So the Han instead built up its cavalry, and this new Han army with intense emphasis on cavalry began its offensive when Wei Qing, using more realistically this number seems, 40,000 cavalrymen in a surprise attack against the Xiongnu frontier markets, purportedly killing several thousand Xiongnu. And in 128, the next year, Wei Qing, and even less, no, now he's 30,000, you know, 30,000 of his men defeated the Xiongnu in the regions again at the Yanmen, you know, around Yanmen, which is around modern-day Shanxi, China, sort of northeast, you know, modern-day northeast China. But the Xiongnu retaliated the next year and actually jumped in and crushed you know, Han garrisons that were defending this area known as Laoshi, also in northeast China, and actually got into Laoshi and killed its governor and got their forces and turned them towards Yanmen where Wei Qing was. Looked like the same thing that had happened when the Han dynasty started right before they made this peace is going to happen all over again. But we weren't dealing with the same Han military. Wei Qing moved quickly, and I mean very fast. Obviously, there's no real timetable for it looking back, but he moved quickly towards the Xiongnu forces, and he actually ended up capturing a large number of their soldiers, not their main army, but a bunch of contingents, and did it so quick and efficiently that the Xiongnu force was actually just forced to withdraw completely from the region it had just invaded. You know, the conflict then moved from this area to the Ordus Loop, which is the region in modern-day China, well, still there today, where the Yellow River, you know, the northern of the two big rivers in China, makes its rectangular bend in the center of China. Cities like Luoyang lay on the very far end of this loop. Wei Qing bursts into this region, completely outflanks the Xiongnu forces, eventually surrounds them completely, and ends up killing 2,300 Xiongnu soldiers, capturing, very specifically, according to the Book of Han, 3,017 soldiers. It was a massive and quick victory. In fact, it was so massive and quick, the Book of Han says, quote, all the soldiers returned intact, end quote. You know, that is certainly you know, not true in the, in the logical sense of the battle. But the region was of vital importance, and the Xiongnu were not going to give that up easily, and they launched a counteroffensive. So the Xiongnu had this right-worthy prince, you know, one of two military commanders for the Xiongnu. You know, left-worthy prince was the other. Unclear what that means. But they started raiding within the fringes of the Orda's loop. Now Wei Qing started to catch up with this elusive enemy who's doing these raids, fought the enemy with their own strategy. Wei Qing got 30,000 of his cavalrymen at the beginning of the night to march a very long distance, allegedly a very long nighttime move to Gaotrie. Once there, he surrounded the Xiongnu camp where they were sleeping, surrounded it again, and commanded a daring night assault on it. And remember, they don't have flashlights. There's no flare guns. This is in the dead of night. And the Han cavalry and Wei Qing end up killing thousands, capturing 15,000 Xiongnu's soldiers, including dozens of their nobles. 
The Han cavalry also sent the right worthy prince running for his life out of his drunken slumber. That was according to the Book of Han. Now, furthermore, the Han captured, quote, a million heads of cattle, end quote. I don't know if a million heads of cattle were really there, but again, still massive battle. Wei Qing then turned north and went towards the Xiongnu in the Gobi Desert. But that's all we're going to hear from Wei Qing for a little bit. Now, after the pacification almost of the Ordis Loop under the leadership of Wei Qing, Emperor Wu looked for his next region, and it was the Hushi Corridor, and wanted to rid this area of the Xiongnu. The Hushi Corridor is a region in northwest China that has you know, held valuable northern trade routes with the Silk Road, as well as vital military postings you know, for anyone who held it. The region is in northwest China, uh, but the region is vast and rugged, providing very little natural support for the Han, you know, while obviously favoring a nomadic you know, fighting force that could you know, just disappear into the, into the rugged terrain. In 121, he ordered Huo Chubing, this young, allegedly 19-year-old, maybe 20-year-old general, to purge the whole region of the Xiongnu. And in the spring of that year, Huo Chubing embarked to the Huxi Corridor and advanced past the Yanzhou Mountains. Now, all it says is he quickly captures 18,000 soldiers from the Xiongnu. And later in the summer of 121, Huo Chubing moved his army to the Anshan Desert, um, still in the Huxi Corridor, where he pre- prepared to push enemy troops out of their positions in the Qingliang Mountains. Huo Chubing then gave the Xiongnu one of their worst defeats yet. As according to the Book, in ha- book of Han, in his assault to push the troops, the Xiongnu troops, out of the Qilian Mountains, he kills 30,000 and only captures 2,800. The tribes of the Xiongnu were defeated, and the tribes that actually comprised this Xiongnu cohort were the Xiotu and the Hunye, and they briefly consider surrendering, but they changed their mind. Unclear why, but Huo Chubing then proceeds to systematically hunt them down and kills another 8,000, including the Shutu king. Think it's time to surrender yet? Because it is. The Hunye and the Shutu tribes of the Xiongnu soon surrender completely to Huo Chubing and submitted their tribes completely to the Han. This allowed the Han to take all the land from the Hushi quarter to Lupner. According to the Book of Han, quote, thus cutting off the Xiongnu from their Chang allies, end quote. The Han soon established four commandaries in the region, which then allowed for Han settlers to populate the region. This was huge. In the span of a few years, the Han Dynasty just gained control of the northern trade routes of the Silk Road, giving it unprecedented control of the spread of culture, civilization, and goods. Massively expanded its empire size, greatly expanded who it can collect taxes from, and got it closer to empires that it hadn't been contact with, as it was getting closer and closer to the Parthians. And that is episode one of the Han Dynasty.